Heretics Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder, and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews. Episode 4. Work on the Billingsgate Tower was suspended while a team from University College London, led by Olivia Belmont, PhD, the 29-year-old lecturer in English Late Middle Age and Tudor Archaeology, very carefully extricated the freshly discovered coffin from its centuries-old resting place. It was then transported to the Institute of Archaeology's main building at Gordon Square. The coffin was found to contain a body, which came as no great surprise as coffins usually do, but what did cause widespread astonishment was the body's remarkable state of preservation, no doubt due to the fact that it was frozen solid. Oh my God! He's so beautiful. It was Olivia Belmont who said this. In truth, William Shakespeare wasn't that beautiful, but he was fairly attractive in a homely sort of way. His body had been removed from the coffin and was now lying on a gurney in the Institute's large refrigeration unit. Olivia gazed at him through a glass partition set into the wall of a small anteroom adjoining it. Next to her stood the director of the Institute, Professor Jasper Cosgrove. He's so, so beautiful. Olivia gushed once more. And he looks alive. It's miraculous. Professor Cosgrove rolled his eyes. There have been fish markets of one kind or another in the Billingsgate area for centuries. Over the years, the ice that the fish has been stored in is compacted under the topsoil until the ground has become essentially one very thick layer of permafrost. It's the sub-zero temperature that's preserved the body so well. There's nothing miraculous about it. And despite appearances, he is as dead as a doornail. Yes, Professor Cosgrove, I know he's dead and his body's been preserved in the ice. This specimen is an invaluable scientific resource. We can discover a great deal from it about Elizabethan dietary habits and cognitive capacity. I shall personally supervise the autopsy. Professor, is that really necessary? Prior to the procedure, have the specimen's clothes removed and itemised. Professor Cosgrove... And then I... make sure it's thoroughly clean. Professor Cosgrove... Right, that's settled. I'll leave you to Professor it. Cosgrove, will you allow me to speak? Olivia's face was by now quite flushed. Cosgrove smirked. He enjoyed provoking Olivia into raising her voice at him. It gave him a certain frisson, like the ones he experienced every Thursday night, whilst submitting himself to the delectably cruel ministrations of Madame Ivanka, his Slovakian dominatrix in Bayswater. Very well, Olivia. Say what you have to say. I'm all ears. Is an autopsy really necessary? Just so we can poke around in his stomach and weigh his brain? And then what? Do we stuff him and put him on display in a glass case? This specimen, as you call him, was once a living, breathing human being. I mean, whatever happened to good old-fashioned respect for the dead? What do you propose, Dr. Belmont? That we leave him like this? Completely frozen? Why not? That people can come and see him as he is and be amazed at his... humanity. Olivia, please don't take this the wrong way. But do you ever question your choice of career? No, seriously, do you? Mm? Because for a supposed woman of science, you are on frequent occasions somewhat sentimental, even, dare I say it, overtly romantic. I'm only asking out of curiosity, you understand? Well, do you ever question 
Your choice of career? Olivia didn't reply. She just stood there, seething inwardly. Cosgrove smiled and walked over to the door. As he left, he said over his shoulder, Once it's defrosted, we go to work on the specimen. The defrosting process could not be hurried, otherwise Shakespeare's body would have turned to mush, so it took a whole seven days for him to thaw out completely. The body was then moved from the refrigeration unit to the UCL Ancient DNA Laboratory. The autopsy was scheduled to take place in the afternoon. The morning would be given over to Olivia carrying out Professor Cosgrove's instructions vis-à-vis the removal of the body's clothing, etc. Toby Bright, a young lab technician, was also there to record the proceedings on a digital camera. Olivia and Toby both wore surgical gowns and gloves. Right, Olivia. When I say action, start speaking straight to camera. Just relax and keep it natural. Toby fancied himself as Rochdale's answer to Brian De Palma. And action! Hello, my name is Dr. Olivia Belmont, and the person behind the camera is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Toby Bright. Toby smiled and gave her a thumbs up. She walked over to the autopsy table. Shakespeare lay on top of it with a cover over him. Olivia removed the cover. This is the body of an unidentified male. His age is approximately late 20s, early 30s. Judging by the clothes he is wearing, we can confidently assert that he died at some point during the late 16th or early 17th century. I shall now remove his clothes, starting with his boots. Olivia removed Shakespeare's boots and held them up to the camera. The boots are made from a beautifully stitched soft leather, possibly kid. The soles are almost definitely cowhide. These boots would have been waterproofed with a protective coating of beeswax, which may also explain why they are so astonishingly well-preserved. I shall now remove his breeches. Olivia placed the boots on a small side table and then set about unbuttoning Shakespeare's breeches. Toby moved closer. I am now undoing the first button. The buttons are made of metal. Toby sensed a slight movement off camera. I am now undoing the second button. And then it happened again. A small rustle of activity. Toby turned to his left and saw that the unidentified 16th or 17th century male had propped himself up on his elbows and his eyes were wide open. He was looking at Olivia. Olivia was completely unaware of this. She was still intently unbuttoning his flies. Mistress, what art thou doing? Olivia, concentrating on her task, assumed that this was Toby playing the fool, as he was wont to do on occasion. Right, Toby, enough with the funny voices. There was an almighty thump as Toby hit the floor. Oh, really, this was too much. Oh, for God's sake, Toby. Now get up and stop pissing about. We're going to have to bloody well redo the whole thing now. But Toby didn't move. Olivia bent down and gave him a shake. Toby, are you all right? Toby? What strange attire is that? Who said that? Had someone just come in? Olivia made a quick scan of the room, but there was no one there. I ask you a question, mistress. Olivia turned and saw that a man who had been dead over 400 years was now sitting up and wide awake. What strange attire is that? The dead man was pointing at Olivia's green surgical gown. He then slid off the autopsy table and stood up. He looked around the room, yet seemed curiously unafraid or even alarmed by the circumstances in which he now found himself. If anything, he appeared to be only mildly puzzled. His eyes fell upon the digital camera lying on the floor where Toby had dropped it. He picked it up and examined it closely. He turned to Olivia. And what is this odd-looking thing? Olivia tried to speak, but all that came out was a strangled little squeaking noise from the back of her throat. Her mouth opened and shut several times like a floundering goldfish, then her eyes 
eyeballs rolled up in their sockets and she too lost consciousness and fell to the floor. William Shakespeare calmly stepped over Olivia and Toby, placed the camera on the little side table, picked up his boots and then walked out the door. 45 minutes later, Olivia and Toby were in Toby's car, halfway down the Tottenham Court Road. Toby was driving. They were out cold on the laboratory floor for no more than 15 minutes, and at first they thought the dead man must have still been in the building, until the guy at the reception desk told them that some geezer dressed up like Rowan Atkinson in Blackadder 2 had just walked out the main door. The dead man couldn't have got that far, but here they were, after three quarters of an hour, still driving about the streets with absolutely no sign of him anywhere. Toby was getting hysterical. He's a fucking zombie! He's not a zombie! There are no such things as zombies! He's dead and he's walking! That makes him the walking dead! And that makes him a zombie! Please keep your eyes on the road, Toby! I repeat, he's not a zombie! There has to be a scientific, rational explanation for this! Yeah, there is! He's a fucking zombie! He's not a fucking zombie! Shakespeare stumbled about aimlessly for an hour, a bit like a zombie in actual fact, before it occurred to him to put on his boots. And even though he was dressed like Rowan Atkinson in Blackadder 2, nobody gave him a second glance. He was just one of a whole host of eccentrically attired characters, goths, punks, emos, you name it, populating the Camden thoroughfare. He sat down on the pavement next to an ATM, and as he was pulling on his boots, a sweet-faced old lady who had just withdrawn some money from the machine took a two-pound coin from her purse and pressed it into his hand. Nobody should be homeless in this day and age. Get yourself a nice cup of tea, love. The sweet-faced old lady wandered off. Shakespeare was confused. Why had the old woman called him homeless? He had a home. He didn't know where it was, but he knew he had one. And what was a cup of tea? He looked closely at the coin. The inscription on it read, Elizabeth I.I. Dea Gratia Regina F.D. He recognised F.D. as being the acronym of Fidei Defensor, meaning Defender of the Faith. The rest of the Latin phrase, Latin being another one of those things that he just seemed to know, translated as, By the grace of God, Queen Elizabeth II. Queen Elizabeth II? The second? He was pretty sure there was one Queen Elizabeth, but two? Where had this second Queen Elizabeth come from? While he was pondering this mystery, a number 381 bus pulled up at the nearby stop. People got on and people got off, and although Shakespeare had never seen a bus before, of course, he could tell that it must be some sort of transport. And then he saw that there was a sign above the front window of the bus that said where it was going. Southwark High Street. Burbage has asked me to write a play for his new theatre at Southwark. The Globe. Where did that voice that had just popped into his head come from? Was it a memory? Well, whatever it was, it prompted Shakespeare to get to his feet and walk over to the bus stop. Meanwhile, back in Toby's car... Suspended animation! Oh, for God's sake, Olivia, don't talk daft! No, listen! There are documented cases of people who've drowned in freezing water and survived. The cold reduces the brain's need for oxygen. Yes, Olivia, people have survived for a couple hours. But this bloke's been buried in ground for over 400 years. It's an extreme example, I admit, and it means he must have been buried alive. The poor bastard. But what other explanation could there be? Oh my God, Toby, there he is. What? Where? I just saw him get on that bus. A bus? What bus? That bus! Stop the car! <laughs>
By the time Olivia had climbed out of the car and run across the road, the number 381 bus had closed its doors and driven off. Olivia ran back across the road and climbed back into the car. Follow that bus! William Shakespeare felt certain that there was a Globe Theatre, but he was equally certain that he'd never been there before. So when he got off the bus at Southwark High Street, he had to ask for directions. Incidentally, Shakespeare had been utterly baffled by the young Bangladeshi bus driver's request that he present something called an oyster card. Why on earth did he want Shakespeare to give him a shellfish? But the kindly young man had taken pity on this curiously dressed weirdo and let him travel for free. Once they'd arrived outside the Globe, Olivia and Toby dumped the car and were now following close behind Shakespeare. And rather than just grabbing hold of him, which could have caused a scene, they decided to adopt a wait-and-see approach. Above the front entrance of the theatre, there was a giant billboard advertising the Globe's current production. Shakespeare stared at it for a good ten minutes. The main wording on the billboard read, Much Ado About Nothing, a comedy by Christopher Marlowe. Shakespeare was totally oblivious to the other people milling about, so fixated was he on the billboard. A group of Belgian sightseers, thinking he was one of those street performers whose act wholly consists of simply remaining completely immobile, took a selfie with him, but still he didn't budge. Olivia and Toby were now sitting on a bench about 50 feet away. What's he doing? I don't know. He's just standing there, staring at that big billboard. There was a ten o'clock school's matinee that morning. These cut-price shows are also very popular with tourists and the unemployed, so the theatre was completely sold out. They were a raucous audience, and owing to the open-air design of the theatre, their reactions, like those of a football crowd, were clearly audible from outside. One particularly loud gale of laughter seemed to awaken Shakespeare from his reverie. Uh-oh, said Olivia, he's on the move. Olivia and Toby followed Shakespeare as he meandered all the way round to the back of the building. Shakespeare could feel one of his migraines coming on, which was little wonder given all the weird and unsettling things he had encountered during the last couple of hours, not least the giant billboard advertising Much Ado About Nothing, a comedy by Christopher Marlowe. Why did it perplex him so much? Try as he might, William Shakespeare could not for the life of him fathom it. He forgot all about the baffling billboard, however, when he clapped eyes on the five young men that were hanging around by one of the emergency exits. Amazingly, they were all dressed as he was, in Elizabethan doublet and hose. They were talking quietly amongst themselves, and as Shakespeare approached them, his nostrils were assailed by a sickly sweet smell that he immediately recognised. Good God, they were smoking tobacco, openly. And yet here was another puzzle, for it wasn't clay pipes they were puffing on, but funny-looking things in white cylinders. One of the young men turned to Shakespeare, smiled, then took a pack of Marlborough from his pocket and held it out to him. Here, do you want one? Draw the fumes deep into thy lungs. Shakespeare recoiled in horror from the proffered pack of Marlborough. The young man put the cigarettes back in his pocket. Please yourself. Olivia had seen enough. To hell with this, Toby. Let's just grab him. We can't have him interacting with any more people. There's a danger of contamination. You're right. For all we know, we could be carrying the Black Death. I was thinking more of the danger we posed to him. Before Olivia and Toby could get to Shakespeare, however, the heavy metal door of the emergency exit suddenly flew open, and an extremely bossy young Glaswegian woman with closely cropped hair, dressed all in black and wearing a pair of earphones around her neck and a pair of Doc Martens on her feet, came charging out. Right, ladies, five breaks over. The five young men immediately stubbed out their fire 
bags and filed through the door, but Shakespeare just stood there, stock still. What the fuck are you doing standing there like a petrified fart in a tornado? The final scene's about to start, so shift your fucking ass. She grabbed Shakespeare by the scruff of the neck and literally threw him through the doorway. She followed him in and then slammed the heavy metal door shut. A moment ago, William Shakespeare was outside the Globe Theatre in Southwark. Now he found himself inside the Globe Theatre in Southwark, standing in the wings, stage left. It was coming up to the final scene of Christopher Marlowe's famous comedy, Much Ado About Nothing. The principal actors were waiting in the wings. The five young men, who were the extras, or as they're sometimes called, the supernumeraries, picked up a spear each from a prop table and lined up behind them. There was one spear left over. The green cue light came on and then everyone trooped onto the stage, the five young men dispersing to their positions stage left and right. Shakespeare didn't move. The extremely bossy young woman, whose name was Josephine but who was known to everyone as Jojo, grabbed the remaining spear from the prop table and thrust it into Shakespeare's hands. For fuck's sake, you dozy bastard! Wake up! She shoved Shakespeare onto the stage, where he contrived to maroon himself upstage centre, looking very awkward and alone. Act 5, Scene 4, A Room in Leonato's House. Leonato, Antonio, Benedict, Beatrice, Margaret, Friar Francis and Hero, attended by six young men carrying spears. Friar Francis is first to speak. Leonato, did I not tell you she was innocent? An assistant stage manager's work is never done. So while the actors were poncing about on stage, Jojo busied herself in the wings doing the vital work of resetting props and costumes. She felt a tap on her shoulder. It was a young company member called Dave. Oh, for Christ's sake, what the hell did he want? Actors are all so bloody needy. Sorry to ask you for this, Jojo, but where's my spear? Jojo was confused. Dave should have been on the stage at that precise moment carrying a spear. What the fuck do you mean where's your spear? I missed the cue because I was in the bug and now I can't find my spear. Hang on, when you outside with others having a fag? I just told you I was in the bug. You were in the bug? Yes. What were you doing in the bug? Well, that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is I was in the bug. In that case, who the fuck's that? Who? In there, look! The bloke that's standing at the back of the stage holding your fucking spear! The play was coming to an end, which meant that the front of house staff were not particularly bothered when Olivia and Toby sneaked into the auditorium. They obviously couldn't sit in the posh seats, so they had to make do with a standing area in front of the stage. It was Toby who saw Shakespeare first. He whispered in Olivia's ear. Jesus Christ, he's on the fucking stage! What? He's standing at the back, holding a spear! Signor Leonardo, truth it is, good signor, your niece regards me with an eye of favour. While Leonardo and Benedict prattled away downstage centre, Dave crept on from the wings upstage right. He sidled over to Shakespeare. Oi, you! Whoever the fuck you are! Give me back my fucking spear! Dave grabbed hold of the spear, but Shakespeare wasn't going to give it up without a fight. In the cockeyed world in which he now found himself, the spear was his comfort blanket, his anchor to reality. A tug of war ensued. Give me the fucking spear! This was loud enough for the rest of the cast to hear. Leonato and Benedict broke off from their confab to turn upstage and glare at Dave. Dave smiled sheepishly. Shakespeare, taking advantage of this momentary respite and hostilities, wrested the spear from Dave's clutches 
and took a few steps away from him. It was now Dave's turn to stand looking very awkward and alone upstage centre. Leonato picked up from the line just before he and Benedict were so rudely interrupted. The sight whereof I think you had from me, from Claudio and the Prince. But what's your will? Anyone who has ever looked into the face of a person on the brink of death will see in their eyes the exact instant when the soul leaves the body. One sees the very same look in the eyes of an actor who has forgotten his next line. The look the actor playing Leonato now saw in the eyes of the actor playing Benedict. The cue was delivered again. The sight whereof I think you had from me, from Claudio and the Prince. But what's your will? And now the actor playing Benedict made a fatal yet all too common mistake. Instead of taking a deep breath and waiting for his line to come to him, he started to waffle. Yes, my good Leonardo, I heard you the first time. And the question which you ask of me is a good one that I must ponder well before I pronounce my answer upon it. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, mm. Yes, think, Benedict. Of what your answer might be. On and on and on he burbled until nobody could remember the original question and never mind think what the answer to it might be. Eventually the actor playing Benedict ground to a halt. Never in a million years was he going to remember what he was supposed to say next. And he was now about to suffer the actor's ultimate indignity. He was going to have to take the long, lonely, humiliating walk over to the prompt corner and ask for his line. But then... Your answer, sir, is enigmatical. But for my will, my will is your good will. May stand with ours this day to be conjoined in the state of honourable marriage. All eyes in the Globe Theatre were immediately drawn to the ginger spear carrier standing at the back of the stage. He blushed and put a hand to his mouth like a naughty schoolboy caught breaking wind in church. Shakespeare had just gone and blotted out Benedict's entire speech. The actor playing Benedict would have settled for a mere word or two to kickstart his memory, but he was in no position to quibble. And there, my good Leonardo, is my answer. What he just said. Although it may have got the play back on track, Shakespeare's cheeky intervention didn't please everyone. Dave looked daggers at him. What the fuck are you playing at? Shakespeare wasn't playing at anything. He was bewildered. For a start, how did he know Benedict's lines? And when he silently mouthed, My heart is with your liking, as Leonardo replied to Benedict, My heart is with your liking. Shakespeare realised, to his utter astonishment, that he knew Leonato's lines as well. He also knew the friar's lines, and when Don Pedro and Claudio entered, as he knew they would, he also knew what they were going to say even before they said it. It was exhilarating and yet frightening at the same time, like having some kind of superpower. At last it fell to Benedict to bring the play to its satisfying conclusion. Think not on him till tomorrow. I'll devise thee brave punishments for him. Strike Wake up, Pipers! The company split into two groups, male and female. They lined up on either side of the stage and then both groups joined together to dance a spirited galliard. Shakespeare was a good dancer, but this was a bastardised modern version, which meant, unfortunately, that this was the moment Shakespeare's newfound superpower deserted him. He may have known all the dialogue, but he didn't have a clue as to how the dance was choreographed. And while the mainly teenage audience may have found Shakespeare's galumphing hilarious... The cast on stage most definitely did not. He managed to kick Don Pedro in the shin, knock the friar's wig off and trample on Hero's foot. Olivia, down amongst the groundlings, had once again seen enough.
Toby, get the car and bring it round to the front. I'll see you there. And she was off. She bulldozed her way through the groundlings, mounted the steps on the left-hand side of the stage, then weaved through the frantically cavorting actors, grabbed Shakespeare and hauled him into the wings. Jojo charged over, her face like thunder. Excuse me, sweetheart, but who the fuck are you? And while we're at it, who the fuck is he? I'm a doctor, and this is my patient. Nice to meet you. Goodbye. Cheapside, Aldgate, Charing Cross, Whitehall, Blackfriars, Moorgate. All these signposted names that Shakespeare could see from the window of Toby's car were strangely familiar to him. But there were others, Piccadilly Circus, Waterloo, Trafalgar Square, BFI IMAX, that meant absolutely nothing to him. What's he doing? asked Toby. He's looking out the window, replied Olivia, who was sitting in the back seat with Shakespeare. Olivia touched him lightly on the arm. Shakespeare turned to her and smiled. He had a very nice smile. He seemed relaxed, almost serene. He had decided that everything he found confusing was not going to become any less confusing by him worrying about it, so he stopped worrying about it. This resolution had the immediate and happy benefit of alleviating his migraine. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Shakespeare shook his head. He didn't mind one little bit. First things first, though, some introductions. My name is Olivia Belmont. My friend's name is Toby Bright. What is your name? I do not remember. What is your date of birth? I do not remember. Are you from London? I live in London, but I'm not from these parts. So where are you from? I do not remember. Why did you go to the Globe Theatre? Is it a place you've been to before? No. Olivia was slightly disappointed. She thought this might have been a promising line of inquiry. Never mind, she had others. When you were on the stage, you said one of the actor's lines for him when he forgot them. Were you, I mean, are you an actor? I may be, but I may be other things. I do not remember. Well, I think that's enough for now. Toby, after the traffic lights, take the next right. But the Institute's straight on. I know, but we're not going to the Institute. We're not going to the Institute? No, we're going to my flat. Olivia, can you ask him a question from me? Go ahead. Can you ask if it would be possible for him to get rid of this spear? This is a very small car, and if he's not careful, he's going to have somebody's eye out. The end of episode 4 of The Heretic's Forfeit.